Welcome to Mercola Healthy Pets Integrative Veterinary Medicine Awareness Week. I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and as a part of our 10-year anniversary celebration, I'll be interviewing some pretty amazing colleagues who practice integrative and functional medicine. Starting this week, you can also nominate your vet or a local rescue or an inspiring individual in your community to be the recipient of our new Healthy Pets Game Changer Award. I hope that you'll tune in every day this week to be inspired and educated by passionate healers from around the world. And don't forget to nominate that special someone that you know that has gone above and beyond to help animals. Again, thank you so much for your support. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and celebrating our Awareness Week pertaining to integrative veterinary medicine, I have with me Dr. Richard Palmquist. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Hi, good morning. Hi, good morning. Now, you have been a somewhat regular visitor on Mercola Healthy Pets, and so some people I know are quite well aware of your story, but some of our readers and listeners aren't, and you have a really kind of half-amusing story about how you were introduced to integrative medicine. And so back up and tell our listeners and readers that maybe aren't familiar with your background story, how you went from graduating fresh-faced veterinary, brand new grad, into deciding that maybe you needed more tools in your toolbox, because it's a good one. Yeah, it's a crazy little story arc. Uh, in fact, actually, part of it, it's in this movie called The Dog Doc that's out now, um, uh, supporting the life story of the person who actually ended up converting me to holistic medicine. But I was born in a family. My, uh, my father was the uh, the head of the uh, microbiology and infectious disease laboratory of the public health department in Well County. And my mom is a dental hygienist, really big interest in nutrition and preventative health. And so I was raised in a very scientific background, went to Colorado State University, graduated in 1983. I was selected by the faculty there to receive the Upjohn Award for uh, Outstanding Small Animal Student. And that was after I planned to become a large animal doctor and I broke my um, uh, back and dislocated my shoulder and, and actually couldn't do that kind of medicine. So I literally transferred from large animal medicine to small animal medicine in my junior year. And when I graduated, I went into a really high power practice. I did my first heart surgery, I think about two months out of graduation and uh, was really kind of on a track to sort of become a surgeon. And um, I graduated from that practice and, and went out into a practice on my own. Um, and I went from basically a, a really high economic area in Sherman Oaks, California with lots of celebrity clients to uh, sort of the middle of a lower socioeconomic community in Inglewood, California. And um, during that time period, I was practicing just high quality Western medicine and, and the practice was building up uh, very rapidly because uh, one of the things we were doing was doing blood work and actually diagnosing conditions and treating with thyroid and things like that that would just take these chronic skin cases and turn them into healthy, happy dogs, which then became big ads in the community. Anyways, one thing led to another, and one of my clients um, moved to New York and became connected to a holistic doctor who was treating her dog's cancer with um, with herbs and nutraceuticals and no chemotherapy. And when I found out about that, I got really angry because she was kind of a gullible, loving person. And I thought, hey, this guy is really, 
you know, sort of taken advantage of her. So I ended up calling him up and asking to come out and see his practice, really with full intent to just basically document everything he was doing and go to the board in New York and uh, get his license revoked. And um, I actually went out and I spent uh, several days in his practice and saw one miracle after another, tumors disappearing and a paralyzed dog that got up and walked and just a whole series of things that literally rocked my world. So why I went out, because I loved this client and I loved her dog and I loved my profession and I didn't want somebody you know, messing that all up. What I discovered was how inadequate the training that I had was and how few tools I had to address these things that honestly I was using you know, euthanasia solution to treat. And so a patient would come in and I knew that they couldn't get better. And as a doctor, I knew that that was the case. And I'd actually worked for this uh, older veterinarian who said the only certainty in veterinary practice is euthanasia solution. And I used it uh, for, for solving those problems. And that solved my pain. It solved the client's pain because we weren't stuck with that difficult case anymore. But all of a sudden, I realized there was something more I could do. And I, I felt like tremendous guilt and excitement all sort of at the same time. Ended up returning to Los Angeles and started studying nutritional medicine, um, not from the standpoint of classic Western nutrition, but nutraceuticals and herbs and so forth. And um, ultimately got involved with a lot of other subjects and found out that my toolbox can be a lot bigger and our results could be a lot better. And, and now we work in this very integrative uh, environment with clients of all levels socioeconomically and um, tremendous number of really high power um, specialists in oncology, internal medicine, radiation oncology. And I treat about Oh, 30 to 50% of my patient loads are cancer and sort of uh, untreatable, hopeless patients. And uh, we just see a lot of really interesting stories. So now I, I see myself less as a veterinarian and, a, and an authority on what we can do and more of a sort of a witness watching what love can come up with when we put our heads together as a group and do that work. So thanks for having me today. I really appreciate you. So, so wonderful. Richard, talk to me a little bit about how, because I know that you have this network of really fantastic referral doctors that you have great relationships with. They refer to you and, you know, you have a network of oncologists and cardiologists and neurologists and orthopedic surgeons. You have every, you have this team assembled who understand the gifts that you bring to the table and you understand their areas of expertise. Not, not all conventional doctors are yet open-minded to the concept of what we do beyond what we learn in veterinary medicine. So do you, do you think part of that is that some people's personalities are just learners for their whole life and therefore they're more open to learning past veterinary school? Or do you think part of it is just having a life-changing experience with something that they didn't recognize could be a healing response? And then, I mean, what it, I feel like half of, our professional colleagues are very antagonistic to anything integrative because they don't feel that there has been substantiation or enough journal articles about it. And the other half tends to be inquisitively open about at least carrying on a conversation about it. Where do you see these two different camps coming from in terms of their own evolution as doctors? Well, I think, I think most doctors want to do a good job and I think they want to help patients and 
I think that because we're humans, we have a, a certain degree of ego associated with what we do. And I think also in the integrative medicine world, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of difficult past history to overcome. And that's on the other side as well. And since I'm somebody who's been actually on both sides and been a skeptic who is so dedicated to skepticism that I was really going to actually single-handedly go out and put this guy out of business, um, I think there's some integrity issues that are there. I really do believe that people are mostly good. Um, and I do believe that veterinarians really exist to help animals. Now, after that, then we start achieving kind of a, accumulating these other purposes. Like I have to make enough money to take care of my family. I have to make sure that my practice is viable. I have to, you know, do all these things. These are all things we have to think about. Right. And, and we can get into the scarcity model where we don't, don't think there's enough clients or we don't think there's another uh, way or Jesus, uh, seriously, one of the worst ones is we don't want to think that we failed a client because there's a certain amount of necessity in being a doctor and having confidence in what you know and in what you can do. And if we um, have a patient and we fail to resolve that case and then we send it to someone else and they help the case there's a trap in there mentally where we can actually feel oh my gosh i i failed maybe i'm not so good maybe i am a fraud and i shouldn't be doing this in the first place and that feeds right into depression and suicide and some of the other problems our profession is handling and a lot of that i believe stems from this paternal model of medicine which is really uh, a combination between some sort of priesthood and deification of doctors. You know, we put on our white coat, which by the way, I don't wear. Um, we put on a white coat so that we are elevated, you know, in the opinion of the person who we're seeing and in respected for what we know and also to protect ourselves from pathogens and all those kind of things. But, but we put that white coat on and with it comes like some mystic issue that makes us more uh, closer to God or godly in our nature so that what the doctor says you must do, you know? Well, sometimes what the doctor says is destructive. So what I found over the years is actually that because of this goodness that people inherently have, um, and sometimes that's easier to find than other times, right? I mean, there's people you can love easily and there's people that really challenge us and make us work hard and, you know, what can you say? But most people love their animals intensely. I think some of the purest love that we see in our lives is actually animal love. And when we pick those guys up and we look at them eye to eye, we just want to help them. We don't want to hurt them. So if we're working to help them and then we fail, we can see that failure as a personal failure. Now, we can respond to that by going out and learning more, or we can respond by hating the person who helped the individual that we failed to help. And I think that that failed help issue is a big thing. If we go back to, you know, the beginnings of healing, it's just like somebody is sick and someone loves them and they go like, eat this and let's see what happens, you know? And then after somebody eats it and gets better, then they pass that information along. And that's the history of healing. It's how can we interact with nature and with each other to get better? And there's true things and false things in there. So if you go to the beginning of sort of holistic medicine in the United States, where members who were the original sort of founding members of the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association, the very first acupuncturists, the very first homeopaths, those are people who took that desire to help an animal and said, geez, my medicines are failing. 
I need to find something else. And then they treated a patient that got better. And they didn't know, did the remedy fix it? Did the intention fix it? Did just the interaction and taking the fear away enough to feed them some decent food make the dog get better? They didn't know. They just know, hey, I did this on a case like that and it got better. So they told somebody, right? And then they told somebody and then they formed into a little group. And then they said, oh, wow. Let's go tell these other guys that are in our profession how great this stuff is. And like one story, one of the, one of the pioneers in holistic veterinary medicine went to a, a very large meeting. I think it was in Reno. It became the Western States Veterinary Conference. And they, they had just healed a dog that was paralyzed with acupuncture. And so after the lecture on paralysis and treating their vertebral distances, the person went up to the speaker, who's the high, mighty, most knowledgeable person on the subject, right? That's why they're teaching the course. And just wanted to just from love share this story. Like, I have this thing. And the person responded by like acupuncture's BS and you know, we've advanced past those primitive forms of healing, which really becomes a joke down the road, you know, four decades, as we now scientifically look at what acupuncturists were doing 3,000 years ago, and the way that they're speaking, and actually what they were describing is exactly what we're finding now in many cases. Now, there's also this religiosity part of acupuncture in Chinese medicine, where some things are truer, and some things are not as true, or that our words mean something different than the words that they were using. But look, if you look at Chinese medicine and you go to the, to the um, Yellow Emperor's book, it begins with a conversation between the court physician and the emperor who basically asked this question, look, people used to live to be 100 years old, and now they're living in cities and they're having all kinds of stress and they're dying earlier and earlier and earlier. Like, what is the cause for that? Well, that's 3,000 years ago. Right, and we're looking now, present time, we're asking exactly the same questions. Like, we might be the first generation that doesn't live longer. We might be the first generation that doesn't get better. Like, what is going on? So there are these questions to these answers that are contained in this information. So in that conversation, in that interaction with that, those two doctors, the one who's seen something and the one who knows something, there's, there's this other human stuff, you know, like authority and knowledge superiority and respect and all this stuff. Like there was just a complete barrier between the academic community who couldn't admit that anything could help. And this other group of wild eyed veterinarians who are just trying things and going like, well, look, I'm not going to wait for you to tell me I can stick an acupuncture needle in a patient who's paralyzed. I'm just going to do it. And over the last 40 years now, what's happened is the love part of that relationship is winning over the ego part of that relationship. And people are becoming what science is really supposed to be willing to look right. Because science is just organizing information. The word science, it, 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 it means categorizing things and putting them where they need to go. You know? So if we, if we, if we look at the evolution, it's really egos colliding. And the biggest problem, I don't think, is the medicine. I think it's the human interactions and the egos that go like, I said no to this 40 years ago, and now I'm responsible for all these animals that I put in the freezer because I wouldn't try it. So I don't want to see that. I don't want to know. No, 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 no. And now those people are actually fading away. And the younger population, because of their contact with the internet and their much more global view of things are actually willing to look at stuff. And so we're seeing the best of the best, 
like come forward and go like, hey, can we do this? So I'm a general practitioner with a postdoctoral um, degree in Chinese herbal medicine. And um, I'm more a trier than I am otherwise. And I still have all those fears. Like other holistic people come and they go like, I'm doing this. And I'm like, I'm not willing to do that right now. It puts my license at risk, you know? So we have all these factors, but basically to answer your question, our practice has grown out of this really simple thing. Before we had evidence-based medicine as a big deal in our profession, I created this thing called results-oriented medicine, ROM, and actually wrote it in our practice forming documents, right, that we want to be driven by results-oriented medicine, which means if a patient comes to see us and they get better, they're happy. If they come to see us and they don't get better, we need to figure out how to help them get better. Like if it's, if it's outside my toolbox, how else can we do? So when this very large referral hospital opened behind our practice, I was terrified because I went, we could have World War III here between our clients and between the specialists and between me, and this might be the end of my whole profession. And instead what happened was, um, instead of the fear that, oh my gosh, if I refer them to them and they help them, then I'll lose the income and now I won't have enough patient visits and I won't have enough money and I won't be able to keep my family and take care of my clients. So I should close down and be an only one. I should be here and take care of my stuff. Instead, we said, we have to do the greater good. We have to do what's best for the dogs or the cats. And, and so we referred we were scared, right? Oh my God, I'm referring this case that I can't help to this oncologist. And what are they going to do with it? And what are they going to say about us? And in most instances, things went really, really well. Like that we started noticing the animals are doing better. In some instances, it was really funny. Like I had a radiation oncologist who literally, my client took over a big box full of supplements she was using. She set that down and the, and the, and the specialist looked at it and said, if you think those things are helping your dog, you might as well leave my office now, right? But I told her she was gonna, he was going to say that, right? I said, so when he says that, say, well, that's okay because I, I don't need you to approve him. I just want to know what it is that you want me to do because you're the best in the area. And they did that, right? And then so over time, this guy hated me, and now he refers me patients because when we work together, we did better. So that's an extreme example, right? Have another person who is a specialist who actually gave every one of my clients a handout about how Chinese medicine was going to kill their dog so that he was legally protected from any damage that I might do to their cases. Now we're really good friends, but that's that result-oriented medicine because when we work together, our patients got better, better than when I worked by myself or when he worked by himself. And uh, gosh, I mean, one of my best friends in the whole world is this radiation oncologist. Like who would think like a holistic doctor would become friends with a radiation oncologist? It seems like we're diametrically opposed, except now when I get brain tumor patients, that used to be a, a euthanasia solution. It's like, we're, we're done. My God, with what we can do now, we have brain cancer patients living five years, good quality life, you know? So, so that's, that's I, I think it's ego and I think it's experience. And like everything in our lives, it's like these love-guided relationships. So when someone calls me and asks how it works, and I go like, I don't know. I just know that when we do this, it's better. Or, hey, there's this paper that sort of talks about this. But, you know, I don't know if that's what's going on. I just know that we've been using this remedy for 2,000 or 3,000 years to treat this problem. And it seems like it works. And as far as we know, it doesn't interfere with what you're doing. And then, yeah. and then they go like, okay, I'll try. And they say, I don't know about that. Uh, I'm going to send you over to Dr. Pomquist. And I say, I don't know about chemotherapy. I, I don't do it. Just see them. And guess what? When we build this healing, this healing 
community, which is a circle, the patient in the middle, circle around the patient. We fill that circle up with love and then we connect each little terminal to the person who's the best person in that area. Mm -hmm. Clients don't spend less, they spend more. But what's important about that is they get more for their investment. They actually get better results. And as soon as that starts happening, you get these people who form these connections. That's the way that we're going to get through this, not by saying integrative medicine is better or holistic medicine is better or Western medicine is better because it comes in a nice pill that's made in a factory that only rarely has ground glass bits in it, you know? So, so we can't, we can't practice medicine anymore without having it all together. And I know you know that, but um, we, have to, we have to accept that as a profession. And Richard, first of all, it's really inspiring, uh, I think, to every veterinarian listening, how each of us have a passion in our own little circle, but until we are able to connect with others, we're not really providing all that we could be to our clients that are looking for for having the best, most competent and capable person on their team for this particular aspect, but that involves usually a team of people yes. that need to be able to work together to accomplish the greatest good. Yeah, and one of my one of my, one of my friends says, "There's no I in team," you know, the classic thing. But but then he said, "But there is an E. There is an E in the I that matters, right?" So we have to be able to look and see what we're doing. So there there is an E. And there is an I in team through that E. Uh, that's a weird saying. But, but you, the point being that there's that, that E, which is the, actually the I, um, that allows us to look and, and see what's going on. And every team has to have that. If teams aren't organized on corporate structures that are not based on truth, they will fall apart and fail because we can't use force to forward a lie into existence. Uh, nature won't allow it. It just won't happen. It can persist and make some money for a while, but it will fail. It will fail economically. It will fail in a results-oriented way. It will fail. Lies don't work. So what we have to do is instead of using lies and force, we have to actually discover truth and share that. When we discover truth and share that, that's this love-based healing community. We put love in we put together what love brings. We put the good stuff in. We let the bad stuff come out or take that out ourselves. And over time, what we evolve is a system of care, which is much more effective and much more flexible than the system that we had before. And that's actually the whole thing that's happening right now. Um, and while it pains me that we have so many really trained and extremely exceptional herbalists in the United States on the veterinary side, the American Veterinary Medical Association has accepted integrated medicine, but they, the groups that are in charge of board certification still won't allow the existence and the development of a formal board certification in um, herbal medicine. And I think, I think that will happen, but I think it's going to take a lot of relationships and, and not an angry, like throwing rotten fruit at each other, but actually going like, wow, look, here's another case that's better. So I, I, I had this oncologist that was a, uh, becoming one of the main oncologists that were treating cases uh, for me. Her name is Mona Rosenberg. She's a, just an extraordinary human being. And we've been in business about two years sharing cases. And one day I called her up and I said, Mona, I really need to meet with you because I don't know if you're taking my cases because you're making money on the, uh, on the oncology side of it and you're just being nice to me because I refer you a lot of cases or if you're really seeing a difference in the cases. And I said, I'd like to go 
to lunch with you because I really want to have a face-to-face, -face, not just a telephone conversation. So we met halfway between her home and my home, and um, we just sat down, and I, I told her that. And, and, and I said, so I don't know, like, why we're working together. It seems like it's working really well, but I need to know what your reality about it is. Like, do you think I'm a kook? Do you yeah. think I'm a quack? Do you think what, you know? And she was really funny. She didn't bat an eye. She said, you know, Rick, she goes, I don't understand a damn thing you do. She goes, I, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, I have all these bottles of things that come in from people. And I just tell them, look, I don't know what those things are. She said, but she said, I do see improvement. And I got all excited because I'm, you know, into publication and stuff. I said, would you um, say that publicly? And she said, no, I can't because statistically it's not, I, I don't have the integrity to make this statement. But she goes, honestly, it seems like things go better when we work together. And I said, that's great. I said, would you be interested in lecturing at the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association? And so the two of us gave a team lecture about how to treat your oncologist in a way that allows patients to get better and how to treat your holistic doctor in ways that allows oncologists to use us. And, um, and we've just been really fast friends ever since. And um, her we just made a film together uh, with her, her Dr. Turner at at, uh, at the Veterinary Cancer Group uh, called um, um, My Dog Standing Strong, which is about osteosarcoma, and uh, it's available on the Clear website for for free, basically. But that's how that that's how that happened. And I mean, that's like almost uh, probably 15 years from inception, first case sharing to mutually referral. And, and you know, now they refer us tons of cases, and they go like, "If you need integrative care for cancer, this is where we'd like you to go." And um, we just we just enjoy the relationship because we just help a lot of animals that couldn't help before. And now, HVMF.org has this study going looking at. Um, lymphosarcoma the most common cancer in dogs and just simply doing this training with standard chemotherapy and chemotherapy plus one particular chemo protocol in chinese medicine and guess what we're pre-publication so we can't talk about the exact results yet but we're seeing just what we're seeing in the clinic so sooner or later the truth will come out and then the question is will people look at the study and decide they should just freely associate or will they try and suppress the this, this study and to me that actually tells where a person's heart is if they suppress it and won't listen to what the study says then i know that they're in a darker place and they're just not willing to to come out of it and if they look at it and go like well that's interesting we need more studies that, that's that's a, a place of integrity for a person to talk. And that's fine. So we'll get more money. And if somebody wants to send me $20 million, I'll get a whole lot more studies done faster. So, and thank you guys. Thank, and thank you guys at Mercola for helping us too. Well, and that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a part of, of course, I think helping, I think fear, Richard, is partly where our conventional colleagues you know, we are hammered in medical schools that, you know, we need to, we need to make medical decisions off of, you know, information that has been, studied well and the fear of if there isn't a study to support this i don't want to be responsible for having anything go wrong so you hit the nail on the head our option is euthanasia there's this giant gap between okay i have a sick patient there's nothing published there's this entire body of integrative common sense non-toxic functional medicine modalities thousands of different options but i don't know about that so rather than risk all sorts of things that my options euthanasia 
But look, but look here, like this is what we're actually saying is every doctor agrees to above all do no harm, right? But the, <laughs> then when do we do something, right? So if, we do, if, if our rule is we only practice publicly accepted medicine and public accepted medicine has failed, then what, when is it okay to try and help? And I, I don't think anybody disagrees that it's actually fine to help. It's just this timing and these kind of crazy legal ethical conversations. Look, I, I love homeopathy for certain things, uh, but I would never say that homeopathy should replace Western medicine, you know? And, and I do think that we can do harm with certain kinds of alternative practice if we delay good quality Western medicine. I don't think anybody would argue that if a patient comes in in shock bleeding, that you should probably not use acupuncture as your primary right. treatment, right? right? But you can certainly use acupuncture to help reduce stress to even resuscitate those animals. And if you know it, then you're more likely to be able to get better outcomes on those patients and to choose what you use and when you use it. I not think that that's, robots. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's the key. But I'm sure when you went to vet school, as when I went to vet school, I was well-trained and well-equipped for infectious diseases, for trauma medicine, got it. What I didn't graduate knowing was how to, how to prevent lifestyle-related diseases. I didn't know how to support kidney, you know, kidneys throughout a lifetime. I didn't know what to do with a struggling liver um, because I just didn't have that training. I think that some conventional veterinarians could, I don't want to say burn out faster, but I think in our desire to always cure our patients, even though oftentimes we don't. Our goal is to fix them. And with what we graduated knowing in veterinary school, we don't necessarily have the resources for the diseases we're seeing to, to provide a functional healing response. That's a tricky spot for a doctor when your goal is to make them feel better. And yet the resources that you have, there's nothing in the toolbox to help with that. That I could see where I could see why our profession leads the way with depression in suicide. And I also feel like integrative medicine is a potential remedy to ex to widen and deepen the toolbox. And yet there's still some reservation about those tools filling the gap between, I don't know what else to do. And there's euthanasia. There is this profound set of resources that I feel like some veterinarians are not aware of. How, what can we do to help conventional veterinarians begin to feel comfortable exploring additional opportunities beyond vet school? Well, I think it's things just like this, actually talking about it in a non-offensive um, way, right? In a non-oppositional way. The truth is medicine is not sides, right? Um, even, even people who would recognize there are existing sort of political and ec economic tribes, um, the fact of the matter is we're all unified by this common purpose of trying to help animals heal. And um, suppressive medicine, things that suppress symptoms without bringing about recovery of the patient, are absolutely important and useful. They make patients feel better. They make clients happy. They make us feel that we're doing something. But if we can heal, if we can, by preference, take an approach in a particular disease entity and make patients live longer, you know, this is where this whole modified hospice movement came about. You know, I, I was lecturing at an international conference about what a lecture we called hospice patients for, or hospice for, um, what the heck was it? Oh, for hemangiosarcoma and uh, for cutaneous hemangiosarcoma. We called it hospice. And, and we were attacked. I mean, I, I was presenting information that was 
causing tumors to fall off and information about hemangiosarcoma in the skin in dogs that we thought was quite remarkable. And no one at all talked about the fact that over 50 tumors fell off the dog that we were presenting. They talked about the fact that we misused the word hospice and that because the patient got better, we couldn't call it hospice. And hospice was reserved for patients that couldn't get better. So if you called it hospice, then you were misusing the term and blah, blah, blah. And that was what the whole discussion turned into. And not one person in that room said, wow, 50 tumors fell off the dog. Have you done that on another dog? And in fact, we have. And you know, not, no one will do research on that because the fact of the matter is that that we're still stuck on the use of the word. So we had to actually create a new term so that we could give the lecture, which was modified hospice, which is now defined as um, a patient who has no known medical care, but treatment that might prolong or improve life, but doesn't, you know, we don't know what's gonna happen. So I don't care what you call it, what I wanna do is do it, right? And then actually have other people look at it to find out if it's really that, or like uh, Patricia Bailey, who's a DVM PhD, really, brilliant um, cellular biologist who now practices exclusively acupuncture and Chinese medicine. I lecture with her a lot on mitochondria and microbiome stuff. And, and um, Patricia says, you know, Patricia just says, you know, what, what, what we call it doesn't matter. What it is, is what science is supposed to be interested in. You know, what's the phenomenon? Yep. So that's, that's the ticket. We have to actually get our integrity in as scientists and ambassadors for nature um, witnesses of what nature can do and being willing to look at it and see instead of self-convicting. And that, th I think that's a, such a huge problem, um, a huge problem. Uh, and I've gone through this arc in my practice. I was desperately seeking um, something in veterinary school that I couldn't find. And uh, I actually at one point put a gun in my mouth and thank God I didn't finish that particular cycle of action, but it seemed like a good solution at the time. And in, in fact, a lot of times the solution to what we're looking for is just on the other side of desperation. So that's what happened for me in veterinary school was right after I denied that decision process, the thing that I wanted actually appeared. And, uh, and I would have missed it if I had just given up. So um, that... We can't give up and we can't fight each other. We can't use force to suppress ideas. We need to examine them and see if there's truth in them or not. Yeah. And if they offend us, that's okay. Like, yeah. It's okay to be offended. And it's especially okay to find out that you've been doing something wrong if you find out that and then you change what you're doing so that you're doing better medicine. That's the whole process of sort of imperfect, goofy human beings trying to become godlike in their abilities to heal. You know, we need to be people first and then we need to be humble and do that work. Yeah. And, and we have to be a little crazy to reach outside the box sometimes to try. Well, and maybe not so much crazy as um, wrestle with your own fears. And I think that for a lot of conventional practitioners, it's, it's from a place of fear that they don't step out and that they deny themselves the ability to see a, a whole other set of opportunities that could add dramatic um, depth to how they practice, but also their own internal uh, evolution in terms of becoming the best versions of themselves, not only for their improved quality of life, but for their patients as well. But I think fear is a big stumbling block that most veterinarians 
face in one way, shape, or form. You, I have it every. I have it every moment of every day. You know, because yeah. I fear. I, I fear that I'm going to be inadequate. I fear that I'm not going to be able to solve the case. And I tell clients that actually on the first visit. Now I go look. This is a difficult problem. I have no idea if we can help your dog, but it, this is how we're going to work. And if that appeals to you, let's do it. And you know, there are people who just go like, thanks for being honest. And they take off and there are other people who go like, that's nuts. I'm not going to do that. And they take off, but better we have that from the beginning than have me wave things around. Uh, uh, Paula Joe Broadfoot, who's a holistic doctor in Arkansas wrote a piece a long time ago called uh, shaman or showman. And it was, she was talking about how much mystery do we need to present and how much show do we need to present, you know, to, to hold a person's interest enough time. And then some people present themselves as these mystical shaman and then, you know, their cases don't get better. And some people present themselves as these showmen that, and their cases don't get better. And all those things are stumbling blocks for integrative medicine and as a whole, um, just, just as much as for the cardiologist or somebody who says, there's nothing you can do for this heart and anything you do is criminal and ethically undesirable and then you go to a holistic doctor who treats it with Chinese herbs and the, the ventricular output improves and the heart thins and they're like well that's I don't know that's just weird I, it couldn't be the Chinese medicine you know it, 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 we have to we have to be more we, we just have to be more calm about what we're doing and just let the work do the work for us. And that's what's happened, right? People seek out integrative therapies for things where conventional medicine is failing. So number one reason why people go to an alternative doctor is chronic unresolving pain. They take their non-steroidals, they get diarrhea, they don't feel good, they still hurt, and, uh, and they're spending a lot of money. And they're like, well, maybe I'll go see the acupuncturist, you know? And some of them don't get care that works and they drift off and some of them get wild results, you know, and, uh, and they go tell everybody. Uh, and, and some of them get so angry that they got better with one or two acupuncture treatments that they want to go out and, you know, destroy Western medicine and all that's understandable, but it's all just stupid human emotion and reaction. What we need to do is go like how many patients get better with acupuncture for that problem. And that's what the evidence-based medicine thing is, but somebody has to be willing to look. And it's really scary if you're making a billion dollars a year selling some particular drug and somebody might come in and say, wow, you know, patients could use this. But the, the funny thing to me is I don't think in most cases the sales of all these things drop. I think what happens is people find their way and they're happier and they do better. Yep. So yep. that's why the Department of Justice, or excuse me, the Department of Defense rather is spending so much money and getting such neat results with alternative care for pain and brain damage and all this kind of stuff. And that changes things. That changes things. So in veterinary medicine, we said we'd like to open some integrative centers. Let's at the HVMF, um, we're going to sponsor this research and then we get research we'll get vet schools more interested and then we got some money and then schools like lsu open an integrative department and then that department ends up becoming basically a lot of times the integrative department goes into the school as a, a rehabilitation department because there's acceptance now in the board certified rehab people that acupuncture helps and chiropractic helps so those specialists now take responsibility and then all of a sudden those units of the hospitals get really busy and financially, they become more successful because the community starts to go, I need that. I'm going there. They help my dog. They might be able to help yours. And then that interest then develops into a whole um, 
you know, group of people who are receptive to what it is that's happening. And none of that threatens anything. In fact, now the rehab departments in some of these schools are actually financially viable, which supports all the other departments, which may not be because they can't operate as a teaching hospital in a way that's uh, economically um, feasible, right? So they, they need that support. Good. So if we help, if we help, people see that we help instead of scream. If we just help and we say, see, that's all. Not like, see, you said it didn't work. Don't say that. Don't yeah. say that. Just and, say and, hi. And I think that that's part of this evolution of One Health, One Medicine is dramatically extending. We have to all focus on extending our patients' wicks for things maybe we don't understand or we haven't learned about yet. It is excellent communication combined with uh, patients and the ability to see that all of these pieces dynamically fit together and they're all necessary. It may take a little bit of time to figure out how we best work together, but they working together means we're providing much better patient care, improved health spans, potentially improved lifespans, but um, in a system of medicine that allows all of the pieces to fit with none of them being excluded uh, and, and potentially facilitate a whole lot better communication between everyone within the healthcare system. I think that that's exactly what our goal is, of course, with integrative medicine. But in offering, it's not different camps divided. It's all camps together. And how do we best facilitate working together in a way that promotes the recovery of our patients? Absolutely. So if you were to give one, if you were to give one um, parting thought or idea, word of hope, word of inspiration to both veterinarians and pet parents, what would you leave them with? Um, Choose love. Uh, Whenever there's a, a decision tree, before you look at all the data and all the details and everything else, go to love. And, um, if that doesn't seem like it's working, go to love again and continue to repeat that until the truth starts to surface and a community starts to rally around the truth that comes out of the point of love, because that's actually where the healing comes. Love will unite and empower and align and even heal. Good words, true words lovely words about love. Richard, thank you for joining me yet again today and sharing your wisdom, your ideas, your thoughts, and your insights. I appreciate your massive contribution to integrative medicine. Thanks, love. You have a great day. Take care.